Welcome to the Regular People Podcast. I'm Wade Allen. I'll be the host of this podcast. And the reason this podcast exists is because I wanted to make a podcast where I could learn from other people and talk about other people's ideas and the things that they are most passionate and most knowledgeable about. Except, unlike many other podcasts, I don't have access to famous people and experts in fields of academics, so I couldn't name it the Famous People Podcast. I'll be talking to regular people about their regular lives. The point of this podcast isn't necessarily to, I don't know, reach a wide audience and have tons of listeners. That's not quite the expectation. The expectation is more that I can learn new things and I can have good conversations with people about things that they care about and maybe they can learn new things too and we can dis discuss things and I might as well record it. So I hope you enjoy listening. The first guest that I'll have on, on, onto the show is Ariel Vaccaro. She is a education grad student and I've known her for about two years now. So introducing Yay. Ariel. Hello, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here. So before we talk about anything in specific, I guess I'd just like to ask you, what have you been up to for the past like five years in your life? Oh, sure. Um, the past five years, um, I guess looking back five years ago, I was exiting a career in journalism, a very short career. And um, leaving Wisconsin to begin two years of AmeriCorps service. And I did that for two years. Loved it. Loved California. And I really enjoyed the work I did working with um, elementary readers uh, in the Bay Area. So like Oakland, San Francisco area. And um, wanted to do more of it, but with older kids. And came back to good old Wisconsin to pursue the uh, curriculum and instruction graduate degree I'm working on now and get certified to teach English at the high school and middle school level. Um, so I've been doing that and student teaching here in Milwaukee with Milwaukee's uh, public school system, MPS. Um, and holy cow, I got my eyes, my, my, my eyes were really opened to some of the wild stuff that goes on in the public school system. Um, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. From what you were telling me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Wade has gotten both joy and horror stories. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that. And now I'm kind of at the end in a really weird but wonderful transition period where I'm finishing my graduate degree, finishing my literature review, literature review which is kind of like our thesis, I guess. And beginning a teaching career in a suburban school, which will certainly take some adjustment. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So in AmeriCorps, when yeah. you were in California, what did your day-to-day -day look like for the work you were doing with the oh. young readers? Yeah. Um, we, I worked with, depending on the, so I worked at two different schools. I worked at one in Richmond, which is a, like a city north of Oakland. And there I worked with like 40 kids, uh, really diverse. I worked at a really cool middle school, middle elementary school um, that um, I worked with a, a lot of Latinx students. And that was interesting because that was during the year that Trump got elected. Um, and I just worked with them every day to basically bring them up to reading grade level. So we worked with them individually, got to know them really closely. They're such cute little sweet buttons. And some of them made like exponential 
literacy growth coming from all sorts of uh, linguistic backgrounds. We had Spanish speakers, we had Portuguese speakers, um, kids from Guatemala, kids from Brazil, Mexico, um, and then also uh, kids who were read or, or speaking English as a first language, um, native language, um, who just needed help too. So to get these kids up to like grade reading level, were you evenly focused on like speaking while reading or listening comprehension sure. or like all these things or was there certain focuses? There were certain focuses. So we would test them and just have conversations with them and gauge what they needed based on that. And that's kind of what you call differentiation or like individualized learning. And I didn't know that at the time. I was just like, oh, I'm just doing what they're telling me. Um, but, but that is actually a pretty evidence-based education, like modern education kind of strategy is to really get to know a learner and figure out what they need specifically. So if I had a student, I remember I had one student who ha could read the the words on a page beautifully she could decode i guess you would call it really well but if you asked her what she just read she'd be like i don't know so that that's you know she doesn't necessarily need like decoding help but she might need um comprehension help so like okay. just paying close attention to things like that and then they also had so we worked with volunteers who we would train to then serve these students in the ways that they needed so then this past year working in the milwaukee public schools what was your experience like there? Ooh wee. It was um it was a beautiful experience, but also in some ways quite heartbreaking. So I was serving at I will not say the name just for privacy reasons, but um sure. the I one of the bigger MPS high schools and one of the ones that does not uh, select students. It's not exclusive. So it's one of the schools where like, if you did not get accepted to another school, you can go to this school. And um, we had a high concentration of really high need students. And when I say high need, I mean, academically and social emotionally. So, and I mean, that's a lot of schools, but our school, as I was told, had a particular reputation for having high need students. And the ways that people would tell me that wasn't, oh, our students are high need. It was, oh, we're, we have a reputation for being a quote unquote bad school. Right. So um, it was intense. I would often go to school and we, we would, it would just, it sometimes the day to day was really nice. Like I got to work with some really bright students. I was um, privileged to serve the honors reading class. So we worked with a number of different grades, so sixth through eighth, kids who were testing at or above grade level. Some of them were below, but they were just, they showed really strong interest in language arts and reading and writing and stuff like that. So really diverse group of kids, but um, yeah, kind of outside of the academics, there was a lot of emotional labor to do. I was happy to do it and, and all, all, all of us were, but it can be really draining work. I, I worked with a lot of teachers who were like clearly burnt out and just very tired. So although they still love their jobs and they love the students, but they were just not, the staff just was quite, quite tired. So yeah, it was, it was intense. What do you think of the, do you know anything about the pay that the teachers were receiving? Uh, MPS is pretty competitive. Yeah. Actually. Um, yeah. So they, I mean, 
you should make pretty solid money, especially after your first few years. Your pay goes up basically each year that you sign back on. There are some pay freezes from what I understand, but for the most part, MPS is one of the more competitive salary-wise places you can work at. But in other respects, it can be, you know, you, you really got to weigh it. How so. about the school itself? Do you think yeah. the school was like underfunded at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a whole beef about vegan beef about um, the way that MPS handles. And this is not it's not just them like schools in New York do this too. handle like magnet schools. And when I mentioned like, oh, the school I worked at wasn't like exclusive. I, I don't think that should be a thing. I feel like within a public school system, kids should just go where they'd be a good fit. Not like, oh, you got. So the way MPS does it, as I understand is in eighth grade they test you and then they also look at your so they test you academically and then they test or they look at your truancy rates or not or your absences and then they also look at your suspension rates and they say hmm uh based on this like let's say wade you scored really high on your academic test your absences were very low and you never got suspended great you get to go to the finest school in the system But if, let's say, um, you scored low or um, you have a lot of suspensions because maybe your family was going through any number of things and you were dealing with, in seventh grade, you dealt with a lot of mental health issues. So you you lashed out and got suspended several times. Um, Or maybe your parents um, didn't have a car, so sometimes you couldn't get to school. Um, And in the winter, you didn't want to walk the two miles to get to campus in middle school. Uh, so you have a lot of absences. Uh, you get to go to, you, you don't get into that nice school. You have to go to this other school where there's a high concentration of kids like you who are in similar situations. Does the Milwaukee public school system have the same rules? I'll explain what these rules are. Yeah. Same rules that I had for bus transportation. Because when oh. I went to school, which was in Waukesha, yeah. Wisconsin, um, I think it was that if you live within two miles of the school, mm-hmm. you don't get bus service. Yep. So was it the same way there? Oh, yeah. We so had kids. Yeah, if you sorry, live 1.9 miles away from the school and it's winter and it's snowing and your parents don't have a car, then you're yep. kind of yep. screwed. Yep. And we had kids like that who we knew. We even had one in my class who we knew um, on snowy days. He just wouldn't be there because it would be far too cold for him to, to walk. And not and you don't all the time know what access students have to like winter clothing. Right. We had kids walking in in like thin jackets and sometimes you know middle schoolers are like i don't want to wear this jacket it looks dumb yeah. like so <laughs> that was often the case but like either way two miles is too far so this school that you worked at was it yeah. in like like urban area where like mm-hmm. there's lots of houses close together because it seems to me that the two mile rule doesn't really make sense in that environment it makes sense yeah. if they're like rural and everybody lives far away from each other anyway yeah, yeah, yeah. but if it's in the middle of a city i don't understand why that rule yeah is still it, it was there. It wasn't super dense. Like, I mean, I wouldn't compare it to like, well, actually, you know, it's, it's slightly, mm, slightly less dense than like River West where we are now, but still very much the city. Like yeah. if I told you exactly where it was, you'd be like, okay, yeah, that's, that's urban for sure. It's like a, it's a lot of families. Um, so the yards are a little bigger. Things are slightly more spaced out, but definitely not like rural to any, yeah. or, you know, even suburban E. Your first semester working in the Milwaukee public school system, um, you were 
like a student aide you worked with another teacher in the same classroom yeah so basically i was a um i was fulfilling my student teaching requirement right. but as an intern which is i'm i'm really lucky to have gotten and gotten that role because basically I, I mean most student teachers they're they're doing their work for free oh. if you're showing up yeah however many hours a week and just working in the classroom for free or observing a teacher um, and of course you're going to be helping out and stuff like that so I was really lucky to be able to do my whole year paid that's nice yeah so that was really helpful otherwise I don't know how I would have afforded <laughs> what my, were your hours like in this what was it the same hours as the teachers yeah yeah so I was in there 8 a.m to 4 p.m basically Do, is that the same generally for people who are unpaid um students, no teachers? so so that they do get a little leeway their first semester. So I, my my student teaching experience was the same across the year because I was at the same school, the same right. teacher, and my interning expe expectations were different because I was getting paid. But the standard student teaching experience is one semester observing. Right. So you're just doing it like 15 hours a week. Oh, okay. So you, you have time to work, you know, at a job that pays you money <laughs> so you can pay your rent and stuff. Um, and then the second semester you're doing full time. But again, that's for free, unless you have an internship. So your your second semester was the same format as the first? You said? Mm -hmm. oh. yep, for same. some reason, I had it in my mind that the second semester, like you were like alone or something. Well, uh, so it was kind of a gradual re release of responsibility. Yeah. My title stayed the same gotcha. throughout, just like student teaching intern. But um, yeah, I did take on more responsibility throughout the year. I think I started officially, like I took over the class the English class in like mid to late September and then just yeah took on more responsibility throughout that I ended up teaching a math intervention at one point which was not great because I am I mean you know me Wade I'm always like oh my god what is uh help me add up why did they have you do that then <laughs> I don't know <laughs> eventually they stopped I think just out of necessity yeah they didn't um, have anybody else to teach math I feel like my co-op was like oh no yeah this is I feel like she thought it was like a normal thing for like for a student teacher to teach across subjects because yeah. in middle school sometimes you are expected oh, to okay. like teach social studies and science and math but that was different than my program like I gotcha. in no way am trained to teach math but I sure tried <laughs> so your program is specifically reading in English English yep okay. they call it like English language arts. Oh, okay. So then, because I, I guess I've always wondered this, if you get a degree in teaching, mm -hmm. is there like a specialization specialization you have to get? Or is it like I am getting a degree, degree in teaching, so now I can just go to like an elementary school and teach whatever? Oh, no. Always. Yeah. Always a always specialization. specialization. Yep. Yeah. Actually, you don't necessarily, I, I didn't go the traditional route, so I don't know what like you would do. If you're an undergrad and you're like, hey, I want to be a teacher. I don't know what. I think you get a degree in the field that you want to teach. Okay. That's my understanding. And then you additionally get a teaching degree? And then you get a teaching certification. Oh, okay. So that's when you take all your methods classes. Like this is how you how you teach math or how you teach English. And that's a two-year program, the one that I just went through. Okay. Well, so then to be a teacher, you, you would get a four-year degree in mm -hmm. a certain subject and then a two-year degree in a teaching yeah, certificate. yeah, a post baccalaureate yes. degree, basically. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of honestly like, I don't think I would have done that because it doesn't. 
just having a post back is not like yeah great it's like it looks good if you're a teacher but like if you ever want to leave that field it's not like having a master's degree or having a phd or something it's just it only applies to that field so i'm always intrigued by my friends who are they got their bachelor's degree like four years ago and they're like oh i'm just gonna get a post back yeah I'm like, just get the graduate degree just do the whole thing i don't but i don't know that's me <laughs> yeah. i was thinking about that earlier today how at the age i am now i could be in graduate school mm-hmm. if i would have decided to actually go to college at the yeah, time but, most people do yeah but you need all you know i don't know i would not beat yourself up about that because i got my four-year degree in something that i ended up not even really like i'm glad i did but what did you get it in journalism oh okay right was just journalism, like journalism and media studies, the yes. jams? Yes, the same one. Okay. Yep, yep. I know a few jamsers. Yes, <laughs> jams. <laughs> yeah, it was a really good program. But yeah, don't, I wouldn't, yeah, compare yourself to the the norm. Right. Because those people are in incredible debt like myself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've so far for the past semester and the next two managed mm-hmm. to not have to pay anything for school. That's great. That's great. So it chose the cheapest school I could and Perfect. then also getting financial aid. Yes. Yeah, I was too much of a dingus at, you know, 18, 19 to do that. I was like, I just want to go to college and have a college experience. And yeah. here I am at 27 with many thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah. On my... I was having a conversation with my brother a few days ago when we were talking about how our parents really kind of like, disincentivize us to go to college. Wow. That's interesting. Which is weird. It is weird. Like, my mom just offered no no help or advice at all about wow. whether we should go, what we should go for, mm-hmm. where we should go, and all that. She was like, I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was like, nope, you're going. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think now my mom has gone to college. Oh, I mean, she, yeah, she has. Yeah, yeah. She's a nurse now. She's a nurse. Oh, yeah. heck yeah. And I believe my dad never went to regular college. He got in a, uh, an apprenticeship in engineering of some sort that's what you, you nowadays you could not do that yeah you like just decide you're gonna be an engineer and get an apprenticeship <laughs> oh my gosh that's very cool so yeah and my brothers um one of them went to college for a semester one of them went to college for a year and a half and um mm-hmm. this is the same brother i was talking to that went for a year and a half and he went to somewhere in michigan okay and i think there's some misunderstanding with my dad where oh. he thought that like my dad was gonna pay for it my dad thought he was gonna pay oh, for no. it oh, no. so then after a year and a half he's like wait you're not paying for this oh no so then he dropped out uh, and yeah things weren't good yeah for several years yeah, that's quite a miscommunication the uh job that you just got do you yes. want to talk about that at all sure yeah um yeah i just i was offered a position at a suburban school district maybe even you would i mean it might be like rural suburban honestly uh, near so I grew up in Muskego and this district is pretty close to there yeah it's I honestly grappled with like some I don't know I just didn't feel right about it at first because I was like oh I should I should be teaching in the city but why did you want to stay in the city to teach to just t- just for students who needed it more or? well I it's just what I'm used to I've never worked in Yeah, in a rural or suburban school. I've always worked in urban schools. So that, and then I just was getting messaging all throughout my student teaching experience from people at my school that I worked at and in grad school that like, hey, we need you here. But just kind of seeing what my teachers went through 
that I worked with at, at my student during my student teaching experience, just seeing what they went through with just in the day to day. And then just as MPS employees, I was like, I don't, if I do this, I might get burnt out within the first year. So I just really had to think about what the most sustainable approach would be. And I kind of settled on, I think I just need to start somewhere where I know I'll have like a healthy workplace where not so much of my job is classroom management. I can learn, actually become an expert in lesson planning and the workshop method and all these things that I really didn't necessarily get a super great chance to do because my student teaching experience was so classroom management heavy. Oh, okay. Um, so I just want to make sure that I do have the opportunity to learn those things before I'm an established, you know, I don't, I'd yeah. hate to be five years into my, into my career and say, wow, I'm very tired. And also I don't feel like I really know quite what I'm doing. I did, there, well, I did have a teacher once say like that I worked with at the school say something to the extent of yeah i don't know if i really know how to teach and i kind of asked them to clarify and they said i've just done so much classroom management i think i'm a really good classroom manager but i don't know that i really know how to teach and that was just kind of heartbreaking to hear um so is classroom management more about like being a figure of authority and getting people to obey or is getting them to cooperate with mm -hmm. each other like or getting them to open up to you like what's like what is it what does it actually entail uh it really depends on the teacher quite honestly oh, okay. so i've seen people use the authoritarian approach yeah um and it works for them my co cooperating teacher didn't necessarily do that but she did some version of that she had a lot of respect in the school community so she could kind of leverage that to be kind of a authoritarian not she i wouldn't say that she she was very like motherly and kind to her students, but you know, she could lean on kind of that respect that yeah. she had from the, the whole community to kind of just say, Hey, no, this is what's happening and you're doing it because I told you to. So that works for some people. Um, I've seen other people take the more diplomatic approach, I guess. Yeah. And kind of just try to have conversations with students that build rapport and just make students want to listen to you. Yeah. What kind of method do you think works best for students? Like, like how do you, in your experience, do you think a teacher like best gets their students to want to learn or to yeah. actually like pay attention? And yeah. Because I don't know, for instance, someone like me, if I have a more authoritarian teacher, I don't really respond well to that. Oh yeah. You're like, um, <laughs> I do respond to like charismatic teachers who seem yeah. to enjoy what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Then I just kind of automatically respect them and mm -hmm. want to partake in their class because they're just teaching me what they love rather than yeah. teaching like me and trying to make me fall in line. Yeah. Do no. you have any idea what you think works best for students? I, I think most students are like you where they, they respond to teachers who express compassion for them and feel like they're on their side. And that's, that's the approach I tried to take this past year. And, and my co-op definitely did that as well. But, um, I try to just um, empathize with students before I judge them or um, tell them what to do. I'd rather just reason with them to the point right. where they, they understand where I'm coming from. And yeah, just coming in with energy and um, a sense of humor, honestly, I think really helps. And I think that, I, honestly, I do think that's the 
I I think that's the most effective way for most kids. Yeah. And I saw that kind of allow a certain um, amount of vulnerability in our English class, which was really important to having productive like discussions, is students feeling like their voice matters. And if you have an authoritarian authoritarian teacher, there's not really much room for that kind of vulnerability. So yeah, I don't know. I think I think compassion first as a classroom management um, approach is the most effective in the long term. But yeah. it takes a lot of work to get there. Like you literally have to show students immediately that you're invested in them as people and then leveraging the relationship you have with them, then you can classroom manage. Right. Um, if that makes sense. No, I think it does. Although I guess on the other hand of that, um, with a compassionate approach, mm -hmm. I feel like that's maybe more easily lends toward students, like the few disruptive students who possibly are disruptive mm -hmm. I don't know, because of like tumultuous oh, yeah. home lives yeah. that take advantage that. of that like perceived, I don't know, weakness. In oh, teacher. yeah. Oh, I've because you're a nice teacher, they're going to mm -hmm. be dicks during class. Oh, absolutely. Do you <laughs> did you learn anything? Um, I don't know, maybe in school or maybe yeah. from personal experience of how best to deal with students like that oh yeah um that's when you selectively break out your um i'm the teacher shut your lips voice and so i had one of those students and um he actually pulled me aside oh so funny like the the weird like uh evolution of classroom management i went through in the, in the beginning i was like way too nice and then i just went all the way over to like being you know strict like just calling kids out for like yeah. every little thing instead of just like you know, just being normal and only calling out the things that mattered. And kids noticed every time. And um, in my too nice phase, uh, one of those students that absolutely takes advantage of, of uh, um, those kind of teachers pulled me aside and was like, uh, Miss V, you're, you're really nice. And um, I just want to let you know that like nice teachers don't last that long here. <laughs> I was like, oh, thanks. Uh, what do I want to call him? Steve, <laughs> his name was not Steve. Um, I was like, "That's uh, I appreciate you telling me that." He's like, "Yeah, so like maybe you should just like be less nice." I was That's like, interesting. That yeah, student, student would actually try to tell. Oh me. yeah, but and eventually I did. Let, and it's funny because that feedback he gave me, I used to then change my behavior directly towards him because there were several times that he would just he was throwing stuff and eventually he got expelled. He was dealing with all sorts oh. of stuff. It was quite sad he's my he's my pal but um i eventually had to just um be really direct with him and that's kind of i think like where like you can be compassionate while being direct yeah. but students should know that you're you're serious and you're holding them accountable yeah um and having like clear uh, um consequences really helps um those weren't exactly built in to the experience in in our classes uh there's kind of uh, we, we use like some technology tools like classroom dojo but eighth graders don't care about that but um yeah you kind of have to gauge and kind of alter your approach depending on the student like there were some kids i could be infinitely nice to them and they would still listen to me and some kids i had to be kind of a jag too yeah and and then they would respond they'd be like oh and miss b is not always nice actually you can peeve her yeah i'm gonna go ahead and not <laughs> that really does interest me though that that one student who would be 
like disruptive and got expelled also warned you that you're being too nice <laughs> it kind of makes me wonder if well maybe i mean maybe it seems obvious on one hand but mm-hmm. this might also be the territory of like psychology rather than yeah. teaching but yeah. i wonder if those students they're not like the only reason they're being disruptive is just because they want attention sure. not because they have any disrespect for you oh yeah or because yeah, i feel like pulling you aside and saying you're being too nice was showing that he does actually care about you oh, really yeah, he's he a teacher. playing close attention yeah he wants you to stick around <laughs> yeah, yeah but then yeah. at the same time he's throwing stuff and yeah um, one other uh, question that I wanted to ask you about that you kind of mentioned with the uh, that same thing is the nice teachers don't stick around long. In your experiences, what do you think? Do you know Do you know anything about the like I don't know recidivism rates of teachers? Like how long teachers last before, mm-hmm. like or how many teachers are only teachers for a year? Yeah, is um, that common? It is. Yeah, I mean we know one. Um, our friend Aaron. Uh, he taught for a year, and yeah. that was enough for him. And I certainly don't blame him. Hopefully, I'll have him on this podcast. Yes, yeah, <laughs> he is a gem. But um, yeah, quite a few, honestly. And that's kind of why I decided to start looking outside of the city, and then maybe eventually move, move back. But um, or begin working back here again sometime. But um, it's turnover in urban schools across the country is just high yeah um and that's higher in urban schools than in rural schools suburban Suburban. yeah oh yeah the 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 guy who hired me at the school i will be working at was like oh yeah our turnover is very low i haven't hired someone in three years meanwhile you look at like any like urban districts employment website they constantly have openings so um yeah it's quite high and I think, uh, you didn't ask this, but I'll just tell you anyway. I think part of that is that uh, very exhausting classroom management piece that I mentioned and um, just kind of uh, working with students that are very high need for yeah. any number of reasons. It gets very tiring. I was I was actually talking to, I volunteered, with, I volunteered um, for a day with a nonprofit around here that just helps kids um adolescent kids learn how to grow their own food and my volunteer manager that day was a teacher who works in mps and he described something that um he he and his friends use called rational detachment which is like and you can just yeah i know (laughs) it's it just sounds you know not great and it is kind of what it sounds like so um just getting to a point and I, I again this is kind of I've seen this kind of phenomena happen with the teachers that I've worked with where they're just like you control what you can control but you don't desperately or futilely try to control yeah. what you can't so but I feel like some t- teachers who can do that they will stay teachers who can't will end up leaving and unfortunately that's a lot of people yeah I feel like that's probably good advice for any any situation Mm-hmm. Although I suppose that same thing kind of leads, in my view, leads towards uh, people becoming conservative as they age because mm-hmm. they have to learn to harden themselves. Mm-hmm. And then that just, they kind of forget how to undo that. Yeah. And then they're just forever hardened. Jaded. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you think, it, have you seen any examples of that happening? Like teachers who have been around longer are, I don't know, different in, in like how they teach than teachers who are newer? Oh, yes. Is there anything to be said there? Yeah. Um, there, I, I can only speak from my experience. I did not work with many fresh teachers, 
but I did just as a graduate student and a pre-service teacher know a lot of other people who are in my position who are young, excited to start teaching. They're very hopeful. Um, and they're really, they, we all seem very naive when uh, standing next to these like 10 year plus teachers who um, still see incredible purpose in their job, but are just tired. So, um, yeah, and I have, yeah, I have some friends who are, uh, it's going to be their first year and they're going into some, um, pretty tough schools and it'll be interesting to kind of see what the, their kind of evolution or relationship to teaching is after a year or two. I feel like it must be hard to be a teacher for your whole life and then still like still love what you do and, and not grow to be like hateful of students yeah. i uh once dated a girl whose mom was um, a teacher in mm-hmm. the middle school i went to oh yeah and um she seemed very bitter towards anybody under the age of mm-hmm. 17 mm-hmm. and like it seemed like that wasn't a thing she could turn off when she wasn't in school oh she was just yeah. <laughs> kind of permanently like that but that's quite sad yeah. I, that probably doesn't happen to everybody I also yeah, knew, a lot, no, there are true. knew a lot of teachers who've been teaching for 30 years who are just amazing. And I love it. Yeah. My yeah. physics teacher in high school, he was probably one of my favorites. And he, I had him like one year before he retired mm-hmm. and he was one of the best teachers I've ever had. He, like oh. every single day he was still just like doing crazy experiments full of enthusiasm. Wow. And like always just making stupid jokes that usually me and two other kids in the class were the only ones who laughed at, but mm-hmm. still I appreciated him. Yeah. That's great. Kids know when they're in the presence of that kind of teacher. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are absolutely people like that. And I, I, I feel like my cooperating teacher in a lot of ways was one of those people. Yeah, they're really joyful people to be around. But not there's not as many as I, I wish there were. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know, I often think about like education and I feel like so much of it rests on the personality of the teacher. Absolutely. Like you could take the same exact class or the same exact curriculum and just have a different teacher and mm-hmm. you might like develop a lifelong passion for the subject or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. Do you, how, how many of the teachers that you've worked with do you think like are good teachers? <laughs> if you don't mind um, answering that yeah. question. I mean, I genuinely think all the people, I mean, I worked with a really experienced group of teachers that had all been teaching for like decades. Oh, okay. So I feel like they were all amazing. I've heard horror stories though yeah. about other teachers who like preside over like classes of many like high schoolers who need like individual literacy help, but they're just getting like, like I, I don't know. I've, I've just being as vague as possible. I've heard about teachers who don't meet, meet the individual needs of their students and also seem completely uninterested in them to begin with. So kind of like a, Oh, uh, we're going to just listen to this audio book and then you're going to fill out this worksheet full of comprehension questions. Like no one's learning from that. And you know, the person who's dishing that out does not give two hecks. So do you think there's, any certain age range uh-huh. of students that's like the most difficult to, to teach or the most rewarding to teach. Yeah. It 
depends on so much. So I think depending on the environment, and it really depends on the person's temperament too. So I'm not someone who could work with elementary schoolers. I, um, I think I, for me personally, they would be the hardest group of kids for me to. Why do you think that is? Because you kind of talk to them like this <laughs> all the time, guys. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. I can't. I like having kids that I can be straight with yeah. and make jokes to and they'll get them. And um, elementary schoolers are not there and they're very sensitive in ways that I oh, am okay. not there for. But um Middle to me, middle schoolers are like where it's at. They're funny. They like to be silly, um, with the exception of sixth graders. They're pretty normal and um, they understand social conventions. Uh, but yeah, that's probably and eighth graders in particular, the group I'll be working with and the group I worked with this past year, they are at a stage where they're kind of positioning themselves in their communities. They're getting to know their own values. And um, deciding what makes sense to them. And they're also taking in perspectives from other people in a meaningful way. Yeah. Um, and they'll continue to do that in high school. But it's cool to kind of like see someone doing that for the first time in their life. And I feel like in eighth grade when you're like 13, 14, yeah. you're doing a lot of that. So would you say then like middle school is like when you actually start to become your own person? Yeah, kind of I, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. reminds me, I think it was 2004 yeah. um, and when I was in fourth grade yeah. <laughs> and uh, Bush was rerunning for office versus uh, Kerry. Yeah. And I, I feel like partially ashamed, but also partially like yeah. I, I was just like turned off at that point. Yeah. But I remember being in my fourth grade class and there was this girl who was we were in a political debate. She was arguing. Oh my God. She was arguing in favor. We were getting of, in political debates in fourth grade. She was arguing with me. In favor of Kerry, and I was arguing in favor of Bush strictly mm-hmm. because my parents were in favor of oh, Bush. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> and just like spitting out anything I heard at home yeah. with no actual thought of my own going on there. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I could agree with that, that. Probably in elementary school, I wasn't my own person, at least Yeah. not in any meaningful way. Yeah, but you were getting there, clearly. Like, if you if you were debating someone, you had a position on something. Yeah, but I, it was just a regurgitated older, position. I yeah. Guess, but, yeah. You would later use those skills to... <laughs> debate things that you actually knew to be true yeah at least I yeah. yeah yeah have you ever considered or maybe you will consider in the future um teaching english as a second language um i've thought about it i really enjoyed working with um students who were learning it as a second language in california sure, sure. um that is a whole nother set of skills that i would have to get certified for yeah That'd be pretty cool, though. I don't know how much the actual certification counts for, but yeah. getting online certification for teaching English as a foreign language oh, is, is... that's a, what you're that's, asking. Yeah, yeah, that's yes. a foreign Oh, absolutely. Foreign I, I would have hopped on a plane and been to Japan by now if I did not have so much student debt to pay. So I want to make some headway on that, and then... Would the student teach, or would the teaching um, yeah. in Japan not... Pay no, no, well. okay. no, not at all. I looked into it. They're, uh, they'll pay you about $25,000 a year, oh, okay. um, which is great, you know, if you don't have many bills, but yeah. I do. <laughs> not a lot, but I just, I really want to get my, my debt down and then be free. <laughs> yeah. Not that I have any lesson planning or class management skills whatsoever, but that yeah. is something that I 
technically I'm certified to do. Yes, that cracks um, me up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always kind of think about like maybe I could move to Vietnam and teach yeah. some kids English. You could, you um, could. But I don't know. That's always that's like the uh, plan mm-hmm. B, I guess, mm-hmm. of my life. Yeah, it's a good plan B. It's a really <laughs> solid plan B. <laughs> yeah. So you recently, I think last week even, yeah. um, turned in. You turned it in already. Uh, so your um, thesis. I turned in the bulk of it. Okay. Um, it is not officially finished. I don't turn in the finished product until August 4th. Okay. You're asking about my, my your, your literature review? Yeah. Yeah. So most of it's done. Okay. So is it like a first draft kind of thing you had to turn in or? We're doing it incrementally. So the, uh, first we turned in the po- the problem statement, the justification, problem overview. And then I just turned in, well, when I t- was telling you about it, I had just finished the actual review of the literature so where i break down and draw connections to um all right first um sorry go ahead. explain to me what your literature review is about mm-hmm. and what like just what it is talk about, about that um so i'm studying the uh discipline experiences of black girls in american schools uh, mostly urban schools and I'm finding that there is, there has not historically been a lot of research on their discipline experiences. It has m- any research that happens to say something about the discipline experiences of Black girls is mostly to give context to the discipline experiences of Black boys. That's most of. Oh, okay. If that makes any sense. So basically, uh, Black boys. Um, have been, uh, I mean, among black students, black boys have been mostly the focus of any research of, of research. Yeah. On students, discipline experiences, um, especially in cities, but, um, black girls reside in this interesting intersection of race and gender. Right. So they experience, um, discipline along a lot of different or I guess through a, a number of different lenses. And that was kind of what um, really made me curious about about this particular topic. So you're saying that the way black girl students are mm-hmm. disciplined in schools is different from the way black boys are treated and the mm-hmm. way white girls are treated. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In what ways? Um, so what I found, at least... With regard to, if we're talking about just black students, black girls are uh, suspended, expelled, over, just referred to the office just about as often as, and in some cases more often than black boys. Um, they are significantly punished uh, more harshly than white girls and Latinx girls um, with exclusionary discipline. So... For the same uh, things? for No, for different things, actually. Okay. So um, what I've been finding is that black girls are more often punished for offenses that require a subjective judgment. So that includes things mostly like disobedience and defiance. So things that an adult would have to look at, read with their own eyes, and then give a judgment to. And, of course, their judgment is has 
biases, filters, all sorts of stuff. Could you get an example of something that would not require that subjective lens? Yeah. So um, white girls are actually more, as an example, more often punished for things like bringing alcohol to school, to school or bringing marijuana to school, stuff like that. Okay, Having So can you measure it in quantity? Rather exactly. Than... It needs physical evidence. Yes. Whereas the things that black girls are punished for are a little more ambiguous. Is that to say at all that black girls don't bring in or are less likely to bring in alcohol to schools than white girls? Uh, well, in or, theory, no. They... Or just that, like, if we're only looking at disobedience, black girls will get punished more for it than white girls. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it does. Um, so what are the punishments frequently? Um, it depends, but the... Um... The kinds of punishments that are really having negative outcomes for black girls are exclusionary um, punishments. So things like suspension and expulsion, uh, things that remove students from their school communities, essentially, right. and drive them into other pathways. So this is when we find students, black girls, finding themselves in human trafficking spaces, in juvenile detention, things like that. So. Is there any rationale from the schools or whatever sort of system as to why those sort of punishments are a good idea? It doesn't seem like it makes much sense to me mm -hmm. if we're trying to educate people to take them out of the school system. Yeah. I think it's... the, And this is just me speculating, but I think most of the motivation behind exclusionary discipline is, one, it's just been around forever. Even it's not just city schools that expel and suspend, right. but city schools do more and more often to black students. But I think the rationale behind it is, oh, you're being toxic in this environment for the sake of the rest of the class. We're going to take you out. Sure. Unfortunately, it doesn't solve any of the problems. It just puts a bandaid on it until that kid comes back to school. Yeah. So are there not like secondary classes that. Um, I don't know, instead of taking the kid out of the school, you could just, like, you're going to, maybe for the benefit of this class, if you're being, I don't know, whatever, disruptive mm -hmm. from the point of view of the teacher in this mm -hmm. class, we could take you out of this class and put you into the, uh, I don't know. The, <laughs> naughty kid class. The naughty kid class, sure. <laughs> Is that a thing that happens in schools at all? Um, maybe in those that have the resources. So I, at, in my high school, you could be suspended, but it was very rare that you would get an out of school suspension. You would usually get an in school suspension. Right. So I've had a few of those. Ha Wait, <laughs> I'm the naughtiest student ever. Oh my god. Um, yeah. So uh, if the school can afford to have someone just supervise a kid for eight hours, yes, absolutely, that's a thing. But at the school I worked at, if you were suspended, you had to go home, and your parent had to take off of work. Oh yeah. To yeah, and this is oh yeah, we yeah. Oh yeah, I suppose that. I didn't really even think about that, but yeah, it has if a you're to the family, right? Or yeah, and if you like are a parent who your kid just got suspended out of school, mm -hmm. and you can't afford to just take off your job, now your kid is just doing whatever alone, exactly. not even in school, exactly. Which doesn't really seem all that great of an idea. No, and that's why we find girls in human trafficking rings and in um, juvenile detention. Is I mean. I, I, I haven't found research that directly correlates like, oh, kids with 
who gets the girls who get suspended whose parents can't be home with them end up doing x y and z like i get but you know so okay so are you saying that's black girls are more often suspended or they're just than than like black boys for instance Mm -hmm. or is it just that they're suspended for different things um i haven't yeah um i don't know enough yet about black boys black boys discipline experiences to say that oh they're being punished for the same or different things than black girls um they are as far as i know as far as the research i've looked at tells me being um punished with exclusionary discipline at about the same rate okay um for what offenses i don't know i at least for black boys i don't know exactly what they're getting suspended for um it it might be i mean my guess would be similar things disobedience defiance and then maybe what a lot of schools call third degree assault just fighting why is it third degree i i don't know i don't know that's just the language that they use in a lot of the research but yeah (laughs) so assault seems a little intense yeah i don't know kids are just gonna fight sometimes but those are the the most prevalent offenses did you experience that a lot of that when you went to middle school and high school of other people getting suspended or expelled from your school? No, no. We had, if kids got suspended or expelled, it was usually for having weed. Um, but aside from that, no, very, very rare, if ever. So. Right. So what else does your liter- literature review have to say? So it's... To me, it starts getting really interesting when we bring in the idea of subjectivity, especially considering that 80% of the teaching population is white and female. The people who are observing and citing black girls for disobedience and defiance, the two most prevalent, as far as I can tell, offenses, are look like me. So they come from... A suburban white background most likely and i know just from teaching uh, working with mostly the, the school i worked at was 99 percent black just he, seeing my own implicit biases pop up and so the school that you worked at yeah 99 black students and then the teachers were like what percent uh white across the, the school they were probably like 80 percent white but in my wing they happened to be mostly well. We had four teachers, and three of them were black. And Is the English department just no, just about? the whole middle school. So the middle school was quite small. It had about four teachers. Oh, yeah, okay. right. Seventh, yep. Four teachers for the entire four school. Four teachers. Well, sixth, seventh, eighth. Oh, I'm sorry, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And only one of those teachers was non-white. So you, wait, the, the school that you worked at, there was one teacher per grade. Yes. For every, every subject? Yeah, but but it's not... So we were a non-traditional school. Okay. So the school you probably went to probably had like... Uh, a shit ton of teachers. Yes, because you guys probably had 100 kids per grade. We had like 40 kids per grade. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. it was like a K through 12 school. So the middle school was quite small. Oh, okay. I, see. Mm-hmm. I was talking... Oh, yeah. When we bring in subjectivity, it's really necessary to talk about who is viewing the behavior and applying their own lens biases lens to it so the gap i found at least 
from what I've read is there's very little literature on the black experiences of black girl, uh, uh, the discipline experiences of black girls that takes into account the race of the teacher. So there's plenty of literature that describes the race of the student, obviously, but right. there's so little on the race of the teacher who's giving the, the punishment. And I think if we're going to talk about the discipline experiences of black girls who are experiencing more exclusionary discipline due to um, offenses that have to be subjectively judged, it's impossible to do a good job of that, to have the kind of discussion we need to have without knowing the races of the teachers. Because right. that, I mean, I, as far as I know, in America, your race is a lens, uh, um, especially if you're a teacher teaching in an urban school district. So that to me is really important. I think I found maybe one one article that even acknowledged the need for that and they they were essentially saying like we we don't have this data. Yeah. We don't have data on teachers races who are working with black girls, but someone should do that. It was yeah. like a limitation. That was yeah, one of the things I was going to ask next. So you're there's no information to be found about the difference in like discipline measures that are given to black girls when mm -hmm. it's from either a white teacher or a black teacher it's, there's no you, you can't tell like from what i've read which is like 30 some articles no because i imagine there would be a difference there but just, oh yeah just the fact that nobody's yeah. looked at it yeah but it is really hard i mean to because so much of the research is qualitative um it's really hard to just or if it is quantitative, it's from these massive databases that that record the race of the student, but not the teacher. For I don't know if it's for privacy reasons or what, or if teachers aren't required to give up that information in surveys or. Could these teachers not be found in other databases, like yearbooks or? They're, oh, they can't. But like, or their names even, so that you could then look them up and find out. Like that would be incredibly time-consuming. Yeah, that would. If you're looking at tens of thousands of sure. teachers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully someone will sit <laughs> through that. Yeah, but most most of the the um, quantitative studies that I've looked at are they come from this researchers are essentially pulling data from this massive survey of kindergarten. It's like the early childhood longitudinal study or something where it's a bunch of survey data and then also demographic data on students across the country who were in kindergarten in like 2005. So you see that even not, not even with regard to my topic specifically, res educational researchers are, use it all the time, but it's limited. It doesn't have everything. And it does not have the, as far as I know, the race races of the teachers who gave information about their students. Is there any, by any school, I guess, mm -hmm. or as a system, is there any measures taken to kind of decrease the subjectivity involved? Mm -hmm. For instance, if like a teacher has a problem with a student because they're being disobedient or whatnot, is it only up to the teacher? Is it, do they show, do they write a report or whatever and then show that to multiple other sources who then decide with the teacher? Yeah. Or is it like some standard involved in like deciding how to actually punish these things or how mm -hmm. to discipline them? Mm -hmm. Like who decides? Yeah. It depends on the school, I think. But one one study that I read examined Denver Public Schools' approach to discipline, and they actually had reformed their discipline policies 
shortly before these researchers came in and they basically was that like a convenient tactic to I, try and... I don't know okay. i think so i think the researchers just chose dps because denver public schools because they had uh instituted all these reforms and they wanted to see oh, whether they had okay. worked so they tried to the dps basically tried to find ways around exclusionary discipline so how do we keep students here right. while addressing their behavioral issues and then i guess they also had a handbook that detailed student like negative student behavior so that when a teacher wanted to punish someone for something they would refer to this handbook yeah and say oh does this fit the the definition of defiance but these researchers looked at those definitions and there's a lot of room for personal perspective to kind of influence the integrity of these definitions of these behaviors so it was just a lot of Sort not necessarily ambiguous language, but words that could be construed depending right. on the eyes who are looking at them. So you said they were trying to get around using exclusionary yeah. disciplines. What did they do instead? Um, so things like restorative justice, if you're familiar with that. That's um, yeah. So as far as I, I, yeah, it can take on a lot of different forms, but it might be like circle where you have the students and this and the person who they may have harmed um, in a room together and they essentially try to process and work to some agreement where they both feel satisfied and that's kind of like an ongoing thing as far as I know like schools who use restorative justice or use uh, have restorative practice classes it's kind of a thing you're doing all semester or all year as long as you have this class not just when there's a crisis it's not it's one of those things that's less so like exclusionary discipline is like one of those really uh, reactive tactics. It's like you wait until something bad happens and then you do it. And like sometimes it's ne- necessary for sure, especially in cases where someone's being hurt or yeah. something like that. But um, I like I like restorative justice because it, it's really helpful to manage a crisis when it happens and to address a behavior when it happens. But it also is preemptive in that it's a little more geared for students social emotional health so especially like restorative practice classes throughout the year that teachers working with those students individually and as a group to um, just help them become better communicators yeah. to help them become more in tune with their feelings and give them tools to process emotions and i think uh, just relying on exclusionary discipline alone does not right get anywhere near that so does the Milwaukee public school system or any other like urban public school, do they have enough or any mm-hmm. guidance counselors or like social workers at the school to help with these things? Oh, I, I, I do not think even close. Um, they do have restorative practice classes for sure oh, taught okay. by certified teachers. As far as guidance counselors go, no, I don't think so. And we had, we had like a part-time social worker and a part-time psychologist school psychologist at our school and that was not even nearly what we needed were they always busy with like they had too much work on their hands oh yeah well i never had a personal enough conversation to with them to know that but um i know they were working at multiple schools at once right and for me that would be a lot yeah so no i don't think so and i know thankfully mps just this past spring election they won a, a referendum. I don't know if you'd call it, you know, 
people saying yes to a referendum winning, but essentially there was a referendum that asked the um, Milwaukee County public, or I'm sorry, city, if they were okay with like an increase in funding to NPS. And they, and everybody's, not everybody, but a majority of people said yes. So they will get additional funding for guidance counselors and um, mental health professionals. So the referendum was that's just was that fund specifically for like guidance counselors and psychologists or was it just in general money? I think it was school? in general, but part part of that, a yeah. significant part of that was for mental health professionals. Oh, okay. So that was actually one of the questions I want to ask you is mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what effect do you think that giving getting more money to underfunded schools would have or like if there's any research on it what does it have? Like does it decrease truancy rates does it mm-hmm. increase graduation rates does it increase like grades or mm-hmm. people's like lifelong interest in academics at all what effect on the students does giving more mm-hmm. money to the school have there are there are very different so it would depend on who you ask yeah i think it would help immensely depending on how it's used i think a lot of especially public schools really struggle with money going in the right places but so I think used in the right way, absolutely, it could really help students. I mean, they were we were working with like some gnarly old technology and stuff. Um, I mean, we had some good things, but like there was a lot of just classroom materials and things that we just didn't have that I know suburban schools don't struggle with. Yeah. And then especially with like uh, mental health professionals, and we we had a part time nurse when we for sure. I know we should have had a full time one. So things like that, that would just help with the quality of life at school immensely. But just giving the money to the district does not necessarily guarantee that that's going to happen. Sure. Um, and that's, I think, where people like uh, t- the proponents of the charter school system, they're like, hey, we're doing, we're sending kids to college with half the money yeah. that, not necessarily half, but like significantly less money than, you know, MPS or Chicago Public Schools or whatever is getting. You know, it's not a money thing. It's a it's a strategizing thing or a, um, it's a mindset thing. Yeah. So charter schools ha- generally they are working with less money, but the mindset is so completely different in a charter school. How do you feel about charter schools? Like, do you think we should have more of them? Do you think? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I, of course, I'm really like I I'm a huge proponent of public schools, but I think. A lot of the ideas from the charter school system could be implemented in public schools. So, so some of the I'm not an expert on charter, but I did work in one in California, and just some of the like more obvious differences were like sense of community. The teachers tend to be younger, but there there's a lot of consistency in the mindset of those teachers. Whereas my experience is at places like MPS. You might feel like you're working kind of on an island and you're doing your own thing. Whereas in a charter, everything like from like the mission to your day to day is very consistent with the ethos of the whole, yeah. the whole school. It feels a little more like, um, like you're maybe working for a nonprofit that has like a very specific mission statement and you're kind of living that day to day. Students might have uniforms and some people say, Hey, that, that really helps in a lot of ways. There's a lot of, the, the sense of community is a lot different. They're very involved with parents. So with my experience with charter schools, my little brother even goes to one right now in Milwaukee. And the teachers are extremely communicative with parents. 
not that teachers at public schools aren't, but I think in the charters that I've experienced, they are uniquely connected to, to the teachers are uniquely connected to the parents. That's just a, like an expectation. What's the difference in tuition or cost of attendance at charter schools? Are they... It's the same. So it's free, basically, yeah. but you have to, depending on the charter, some charters will accept anybody. Some charters won't. So like, I don't know if you've heard of Carmen. They are a charter. They're arguably one of the most successful charters in Milwaukee, but they're quite exclusive. So they don't have to take you if you yep. got expelled from some school. They might say, no, you're a liability. Sorry, you're going to have to go somewhere else. So that's that's another. So a lot of people might argue that charters are not equitable, that they're only geared for a certain kind of student. Yeah. And that certain kind of student is one that would have su- succeeded at any school or done at least pretty well at any school. So kids that just have a strong sense of duty, uh, they have a strong home support system. Yeah, so that's, that's one of many issues that public school proponents have against charters. But, right. Yeah. How about private schools? Do you have any thoughts about those? Yeah, I don't know much about private schools. They are... Um, oh, sorry. I forgot to mention something important about sure. charters. They often have like clear discipline systems in order. Like for Carmen, as Carmen, for example, they have like a demerit system. MPS oh, doesn't yeah. have anything like that. Does that work more effectively than? Oh, yes, because yeah. everyone's on board with it. Yeah. Whereas in MPS, if you want to institute a system like that, you're doing it by yourself. Oh. And unless you can get everyone in your wing to get on board, it's sometimes it just doesn't mean anything. Like, oh, great. I. Miss V is, took a point off the dojo chart for me on, in English, but that doesn't matter when I go to social studies. Like, yeah. so, yeah, and I and there's no such thing as like detention or anything like that. So, in in what schools the charter uh, school? in the school that I worked oh, at the school at you MPS. worked at there was no such thing. Oh yeah, detention. No. Oh, because there's what nobody to have to over. I I don't I genuinely don't know, but that might be yeah part of it because oh, okay. you you would have to pay a teacher to stay and yeah and do that. Yeah. Is a lot of this just like a symptom of lack of funding then? Because if you're trying to get students out of your school Mm -hmm. because you can't pay to keep them under watch in your school, is that just rather than, I don't know, just straight up shitty practice, it's like because they don't have enough money. Like all all the expelling and Mm -hmm. suspending and no detentions. Like, Mm -hmm. Is that just part of it or is that all of it? I don't know. I don't know, honestly. I feel like... It would depend on who you ask. Um, could you ask that question one more time? Sorry. Like, is, is the lack of, like, having enough resources or money, is that, like, the entire reason why they you know, choose not to have detentions or they choose to suspend people out of school mm-hmm. and get to take them out of the school? Because now, like, they don't have to worry about paying. Yeah. For Someone any, to for, watch them. Yeah, yeah, for anything that that student may need. Yeah. It might be. They do, like... Your school will still get the money that week, even if, like, Wade, you're not there because you got expelled for a week. But I feel like that might be part of it. And then, so with charters, again, they have less money, but they're still holding detentions and stuff. But they're also working teachers, I think, harder. You're just going to be putting in more hours for free. But again, that's the expectation. That's the culture. Do you know if teachers are paid similarly in charter schools? Less. Less paid and more... And more Hours? work, yes. And that's, wow. yeah, that's kind of like, especially in Milwaukee, that's kind of the tone. It's like you can work in MPS, 
and make better money, but your job might be. It's kind of interesting, like that 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 would work because I feel like a lot of people usually point towards getting more money as a sign of like better quality or well, better workplace, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The benefits and the money are really good in in, in a lot of public school districts, but yeah, the the your day to day workplace is not guaranteed to be okay. a sustainable one. But they know that, and I think that's why they offer such competitive money. Whereas the the charter schools can hire people for less because teachers do want to work in a school where they're not constantly classroom managing. Anything you want to talk about of your thesis that we didn't get to? Um, I did talk a a little bit more about like the routines, but we did talk about we talked about restorative practice, which I think is huge. Changing. Just making teachers aware of their own implicit biases is also really important so that when they are faced with making a subjective judgment, they aren't necessarily clouded by their conditioning around race. So for me, growing up in a, in a white suburb, I certainly left there with implicit biases about people of color. So just having... Being able to be a reflective teacher, to be on a fly, be like a fly on the wall, while you're while you're teaching, being able to look at what you're doing and saying, examining your language, and thinking about how race and gender have a real impact on the way you teach and the way you classroom manage, and, and not even just with regard to race, but especially when we're talking about black girls, about gender, because Black women throughout history have been um, subject to a lot of really negative stereotypes. Po- some positive ones, for sure, like that motherly nurturing stereotype. Yeah. But also the things like the angry black woman, the sapphire. We, we experience those as white people, and we've lived in communities that try to confirm them all the time. So there's no way that that's not present in our psyche as we're teaching. So it's just really important to examine that and then to also give, to examine our own psyches, but then to also give black girls ways to celebrate themselves throughout their K-12 experiences. Black women are, um, and black girls experience our biases as teachers and internalize those. And Sometimes that results in them devaluing themselves, even though they're perfectly intelligent, beautiful human beings. They are viewing themselves the ways that we teach them to view themselves. So giving them spaces to build each other up, build themselves up, to to feel empowered, and to not fear like the, I guess, like the white gaze, um, to not feel like they're being watched and judged. Are these things that you, I don't know, are there like specific examples of how to do this? Or is it more just about your like every moment of being a teacher, just like giving off vibes that you're not like judging people or stereotyping them? Yeah. Like are there specific things to do? Yeah, there are. I've um, So that, of course, just being someone who exudes, just being a teacher who is, is reflective and um, vocalizes that to yeah. students and acknowledges their own biases through like I've apologized to students for things I've said just not I mean not like racist 
any you know anything like that but just being someone who apologizes um who isn't afraid to acknowledge their own mistakes that goes a long way with with students and yeah being someone that just is clearly a work in progress so i would let students know or i'd let, at least try to just let students know that i'm i'm learning just as much as they are but yeah there are specific programs and curriculum developed by folks who want black girls to have spaces to to be black girls and to not have to do so with constantly worrying about the way that white people and white teachers are perceiving them. So one of those, if I can remember, well, I'll just try to remember it as best I can. It was basically a program, um, an after-school program for adolescent black girls where um, they were taught all of these different like characteristics to be like a whole healthy human. Um, and then also given creative outlets to build their own identities as black women. So that's one thing. I've also read about curriculum exclusively for black girls, where it would be like kind of like a workshop where an educator would offer students texts by black women, facilitate discussion, all just for black female students. So things like that are really the research shows are pretty effective for most students but it does get tricky when and then so that first program i mentioned to you it gets a little tricky because uh, to me because some of those programs are essentially while they're doing really good things they're essentially teaching black girls how to be more white in order to survive in a white centric academic world so how to be more submissive and quiet rather than more direct assertive um, someone that advocates for themselves because those traits don't fit into into what we call like a good classroom classroom should be quiet they shouldn't kids shouldn't speak out of turn blah 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 Um, and some of this programming to me basically does that it basically teaches kids how to survive uh, just a messed up system and I don't think that does much to solve the problem nor does it show students hey the system you're in is messed up it doesn't really acknowledge that it's it's kind of just isn't that kind of what the school systems want though is for mm-hmm. just kids, oh, kids to be obedient and because mm-hmm. that's what they're getting in trouble for in the first place yeah yeah so then are you advocating for just changing the format of classes entirely then mm-hmm. rather than not being so focused on quiet and yeah. listen to the teacher and do what you're told listen, 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 yeah. i guess in some ways yeah i i would love a shift in culture in in our class in american classrooms one that is inclusive of all styles of learning some yeah. students learn really well in really boisterous classrooms where they're able to shout out their ideas and some students don't learn well in that space they work well independently or um, they prefer one-on-one instruction and stuff like that. But that, that would take just such an incredible culture shift and like some incredible responsiveness to students' needs and we just don't have the people or money or time to do so. But yeah, essentially, I, I would love even, even a slight just expectation change. I feel like a lot of the times, and I've, I felt myself... In, in this kind of mindset when I first took over 
our classroom as a student teacher where I was just thrown off by every time a student would speak out of turn or any time someone would go to the bathroom without asking me. And that was me applying my, my, you know, I was, I was like the dutiful student who didn't do anything naughty all through high school, you know, my K through 12 experience, but that's not all students. Yeah. And, and classrooms don't need to run that way to be successful. You can have a little more looseness and flexibility and still have a successful classroom where students do well. And in fact, they're probably going to take more ownership of their learning if they feel that the spaces and, and the classroom culture is reflective of their own values and their own learning styles. So I feel like sometimes we get really stuck on students need to be obedient. This classroom needs to be quiet when I want it to be and it. Everything needs to go to plan. And honestly, that does not, that doesn't guarantee really positive outcomes for students. And to me, it doesn't facilitate them either. Having such rigidity in education. I don't know. That's my thing. Yeah. Earlier, you were mentioning how the school that you worked at was like they would take in students who couldn't get into other schools for various reasons. Do you think there's a problem with exclusive schools that like, you know, this school will only take you if you have this these grades or if you haven't done these infractions or like they only take specific students? Do you mm-hmm. think that's something that needs to be avoided or should be avoided more? Like, do you think more schools should be just open to all students? I think we should, if if we're really going to make schools exclusive, the things that make them exclusive shouldn't be like coded on race and class. Because things like truancy, stuff like, when you're in eighth grade, it's not your fault if you're truant. You're a kid. So to me, I don't know. If, if we're going to make it so that certain schools are exclusive. I feel like it should not be based on your scores or any number of like, just like random data points. It should be based on your interests and your learning styles and your needs. So if I'm a student who really um, enjoys art and I happen to really respond to certain uh, instructional strategies or, um, certain environments, let's say I'm a student who, who likes art, but then also really enjoys large classrooms. Maybe I can go to this one school who that really would work with me in that way. Or I'm a student who benefits from small class sizes and a lot of one-on-one time. Maybe I can go to a different school that will give me that. But right now that's not the case. It's just, oh, you have really good grades. You get to go to this school where we've basically funneled all the quote unquote good teachers and all the good students. And you can just go to school there whether or not they're gonna serve your individual needs the best we don't know yeah that's kind yeah of that thing. does sound like it might be a good system of going off of interest but then I'm, i feel like it might run into the trouble of mm-hmm. don't schools have incentives to keep their like graduation rates as high as they can mm-hmm. and their overall like test scores yeah. and students grades as high as they can so yeah. now if they have any reason to believe that a potential student mm-hmm. wouldn't graduate or wouldn't get good grades and they probably wouldn't want that student yeah yeah is there any way to i don't know change that or get around that mm-hmm. system i think maybe i'm reading your question wrong but maybe, um we'll find out yeah <laughs> um maybe not so much placing students in schools based on their interests but based on their what we know about their learning styles so the kind of environments that they learn best in that they're most successful in okay i think that would be a better way to ensure more better outcomes for students 
and like I said, like some students respond really well to louder, you know, louder classrooms where they're allowed to speak out, more boisterous uh, environments, and some students really respond well to quieter classrooms where they're able to work individually. And we're even seeing things like that in kind of subtle ways now where students can learn online or they can learn in person. I mean, that's just a really... And yet they still have to pay the same cost. And they still have to pay online. the same cost. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but essentially just being responsive to, their, to the environments where they learn the best. Okay. I think that would be more meaningful than just throwing a student in a tech school because they like sure. to work with wood. Like, yeah. Is that something that already happens like enough in schools of like measuring their like their best environment for learning like do you think that the average school has that information no no not at all i don't think any of that comes into play until you're considering colleges and you're like oh i want to go to this school because they have x and y and z programs or it's a small school and i went to a big high school and i hated it so maybe at this small private school i can uh get to know my teacher better and have i don't know I also wonder how much in flux that kind of thing is when mm-hmm. you're a kid That's or true. a teenager. That's like true. Yeah. One year, if you prefer being taught this way, the next mm-hmm. year you don't. Yeah. If you're in a yeah, school yeah. that teaches this way, now you got to transfer schools or something. I suppose there's really no easy answer, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do have one question for you that I just thought of. What do you think the role of self-education is uh-huh. in like education in general? Do you think yeah. it's something that should be kind of like seen as obligatory? Because mm-hmm. um, obviously people can succeed very mm-hmm. well by just self-education but mm-hmm. i wonder how much of that is like on the student and- yeah that's actually the i feel like the trend like the direction we're going lately so i don't know if have you heard of the workshop method Not at really. all okay no. so you explain what that is yeah it's um like the newly accepted like english language arts teaching method only for english for well it works it's most effective as far as i know for english language arts and the teachers the people who developed it were language arts teachers so essentially rather than your standard teacher lectures maybe you do a little bit of group work maybe you do a little bit of individual work but mostly your teacher's blabbing at you yeah it's not so much about you it's pretty teacher-centered that that's pretty much the standard or has been the standard that was my high school and middle school education but with the workshop method, you're essentially shrinking that teacher blabbing time to about 10 to 15 minutes. And then the rest of the time is what you called self-education, but we call uh, workshop time. Okay. So students are working individually on either reading or writing. So they get their own giant chunk of practice time. And to me, that kind of carries this, like that self-education yeah. ethos, like, that student takes ownership of their learning. That's that's something you hear a lot in the education world. Is students are ta- we want students to take ownership of their learning. Like that's what that's what people mean is like basically becoming someone who seeks out their own education. Yeah, like um, a lifelong learner. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of like I guess two of my classes in high school. I, my drama class is just kind of formatted and very much that we work on things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But. I feel like it's hard to have a drama class that isn't that way. Yeah. And then my physics class also. A teacher would like always teach us something and you know do some experiment at the beginning of class. Mm-hmm. And then he gave us homework, but then he gave us the second half of the class period to do our homework, so we never actually had homework. That's awesome. But then also, I, yeah. I had an experience in 
my one of my history classes in high school where the first semester it was like what you described teacher talks at you and you listen Mm -hmm. and then the second semester my teacher was trying some experimental teaching style or whatever Uh where it was called a flipped classroom Mm. have you heard of those that's basically yes yeah yeah that is essentially what the workshop method is modeled after yeah okay i do remember hating that yeah Um, (laughs) (laughs) because normally it was the history in history class he would go have his PowerPoint and he'd talk about history and we would mm-hmm. just write notes and then every couple of weeks we'd have a test or whatever. Yeah. And it was easy enough. Not uh-huh. very interesting, but yeah. easy enough. And then flipped classrooms, we were supposed to watch his lectures that he would record uh-huh. on our own time at home. Oh my god, no. And then when we were in class we were supposed to do homework. Uh-huh. And the reason I hated this mostly was because oh, I didn't oh do the god. homework the previous semester yeah and that was no problem for me uh-huh. and now all of a sudden i was expected to, to sit there in class all for an hour and do, do the homework that yeah. i didn't want to do and i couldn't really do anything else that is so. hilarious oh my gosh yes i have heard of that yeah that's not quite workshop maybe i'm maybe i was wrong i have heard of that though like yeah. teachers being like oh the works the the information's online you better come having yeah. read it i don't like that i think honestly i hate the idea of homework i think it's terrible yeah. i think it ignores like the idea that like like kids are at school for 40 hours a week yes which is insane and then for us to literally be like here's 10 more hours yeah no no like, i remember <laughs> i didn't take the like ap hard whatever classes college credit classes in my first mm-hmm. few years of high school but i had a lot of friends who did yeah and i remember them basically always doing homework for yep. their super hard they, tests those kids didn't get childhoods yeah. as far as i'm concerned like they would That's... spend their lunch hours they'd spend all day after school doing their homework no yeah. And like, I was like, what? I don't even have to do any homework because I'm mm-hmm. fine with taking a seat. Yes. You're probably a more well-rounded human because of it. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think the idea of homework kind of sets up either a false idea of the future or yeah. like a bad idea of the future oh, where yes. it's kind of like when you go into your career or job, whatever it is, I feel like the fact that you had to do homework the last 15 years of your life sets you up for the, like thinking that you're going to have to do job homework mm-hmm. like you're gonna have to take your job home with you and i don't think that's I can a healthy personally thing attest to this yes yeah I, I definitely am an advocate of my job is this time of day uh-huh. when it's not job time i'm doing something completely unrelated to yes. my job and i don't yes. even have to remember that i have one Absolutely. instead of now it's time to do more job mm-hmm. at home yep that was that was pretty much the first couple of years of my working life is i would take my journalism work and just like do it at home just always doing it yes and i remember my partner at the time just being so irritated that i was working all the time yeah and i was like no this is the expectation like this is this is what i have to do and he was like that is no that's not sustainable but but i had done i'd taken lots of ap classes in high school and all of my friends were like super overachievers so it was not I, I almost shuddered and I still do like I have not shaken this off at the idea of having free time. Oh, yeah. And having have like hobbies and that to me, that's sad. Like I, I would love to like work through that so I can do some other things. But like, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I yeah, I, I really don't like homework. I think it's a completely like inequitable institution. It assumes that kids have a safe you know space at home to sit in silence and and do incredible cognition fueled labor for two hours after sitting in school for eight hours the last thing i want to do after being at work is go home and do more i don't know I, yeah i it also kind of assumes that you it. don't have a job yeah. especially like in college oh, like yes. my, my last semester it's like 
I'm sure a lot of the people also had jobs, which makes it even more ridiculous, mm-hmm. the amount of homework that the teachers were expecting us to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, what, what I found out in my psychology class was that I didn't have to actually read the textbook. I could just, like, take the test and then yep. just kind of scan the textbook for the information I needed when yes. answering the questions, which yeah. was kind of a, a rip-off education-wise. Like, no, truly. Like, I don't even need to learn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then my economics class, my teacher was completely unreasonable. He... <laughs> uh, would assign like six chapters of the textbook yeah. at a time and that's economics uh, is drier than it, a fucking bag of not flour. only is it dry but it was like <laughs> several several hours there's like a good 150 pages of a textbook oh, having wow. to read within a week every week because it's a thick textbook but. yeah so like i want to ask those teachers what the hell do you do with your free time that you think i can read 150 150- Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah. No. The last two years I've been getting assignments like that. And then I finally asked one of my professors, I was like, hey, like, you know, I can't read this much, right? Like I'm working, I'm, I'm doing my internship. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're just we're just hoping you read some of it. I was like, <laughs> what's wrong with you? They're not actually expecting you to complete it all, no, but they're that, making so many students think that they are. Yes. And that just creates incredible stress. And then it just just like you did. It just makes students who know how to work around yeah. literally have to do go through mental freaking hoops yeah. to try to figure out how to do this assignment without doing this inhumane amount of labor. Yeah. Eradicate homework 2020. Yeah. I think in my last year of high school, during my whole high school experience, there's lots of changes, like changes in principles, changes in like mm-hmm. the grading system. Mm-hmm. Um, but my last year, they changed it to, I think, homework was worth 10% of your overall grade. Okay. Which is basically like, don't need to do homework anymore. No, truly. <laughs> <laughs> don't need to do but homework. But although it did, it did screw me, mm-hmm. not completely because I still passed the class, but it kind of did screw me in math classes because my math classes, I, I don't think in my life I've had a math teacher who was passionate about it or like, <laughs> t- who like taught it well. Yeah, I, real- I, can't, I can't even think of one either. Okay, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> I have realized after Spurs. graduating from high school <laughs> the past like seven years that I actually do really like math and like yeah. oh. learning it from people who like are passionate about it, whether it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, YouTubers or Khan yeah, Academy or yeah. whatever, like it can be really interesting. Oh, absolutely. But all the math t- teachers I had within schooling years, like it was just, I could, I was like falling asleep, oh. was, like doodling, like I couldn't maintain focus on yeah. this because they didn't even... It seemed like they were just... They hated it. Yeah, well, if they, they hated hate it, it, why would you like it? Yeah. So in my math classes, this whole 10% homework rule yeah. kind of effectively meant that like these like four tests, these unit tests you would take were like your entire Everything. grade. And then my math... For some reason, my math classes also had a rule that if you failed any one unit of a test, you failed the whole test. Oh, You have wow. to at least get a passing grade. Because like Ugh. they would, you know, you, you learn some stuff and then you take a test and that mm-hmm. test covers the last like four weeks of what you learned. Mm-hmm. So if you fail any one week's content, you mm-hmm. just fail the test. Wow. So wow. I failed a few tests, <laughs> but luckily I was able to still pass the class as a whole. But oh my gosh. I did fail two math classes in high school. Did you really? Earlier in freshman You're a little and smart sophomore self? Oh No, my gosh. like my, my freshman year math text or um, notebook yeah it was just full of drawings because oh my that's gosh, all i wait. did in my class yeah. yeah i did go to summer school which did you actually i take it back to what i said before yeah the one math teacher i've ever had that was great was my summer school math teacher wow oh, i learned God. more within three weeks than i did within seven years yeah yeah that's wait i feel like you're like a prime example of like kids who were just are just not 
a good fit for like the freaking western idea yeah. of school standardized yes system because i i like just talking to you i'm like oh my gosh this man does so much research on his own time he's incredibly intelligent and then you tell me about your high school experience i'm like oh my god if i were your teacher i would have thought you were a dingus <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, I feel like you, especially among all my friends, are, like, a really good example of that. I have some siblings, too, who are just, like, I know they're incredibly intelligent, but some of their school experiences show me that their teachers, because they weren't, you know, so eager to jump on the Western education train, that their teachers basically wrote them off. So, yeah, it's a bummer. Luckily, I I had a few teachers, definitely, Mm -hmm. that just wrote me off, but I had some that also... Yeah. Like really liked me and could Absolutely. see that even though I didn't want to do the work, I, yeah. I don't know, still knew still curious, what I was talking about. Still wanted to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Like my senior year English teacher was really cool. He was, I think, um, really fresh teacher. He was like 26 mm-hmm. or something like that. And we had this end of year paper that was supposed to be really long for high school paper. It was like 20 pages or something about, I think we could just choose whatever topic, but I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. And we had, like, a portion of that grade was on a presentation on mm-hmm. this topic. Mm-hmm. So I chose to do the presentation and not write the paper. <laughs> and ordinarily, that should have failed me. But he, the teacher was just like, you know, like, even though you didn't write it, I mm-hmm. feel like you don't deserve to fail this class. Maybe you I would, did, though. Yes. Yeah. We need to be more flexible. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't say, like, Western education. I should say American because I think it's yeah. us in the U.S. that are yeah. the problem. I don't know about other No, there's countries. definitely some really great education systems, especially, like, in Finland. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, well, I believe it. Uh, Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. that, I don't know, I'd love to have been, gone to one of their schools as a kid. Oh, yes. And their prisons. But that's and their story. prisons. <laughs> more so, like, are they more, like, rehabilitation yes, focused? Yes. Oh, good. Like, it's not about locking them up. Mm-hmm. forever it's like they get apartment suites they get cooking classes mm-hmm. they get education good like oh and it's just about like let's get you back into this society great rather than let's just punish you yeah and then spend uh, however much tax money on you for the next however long you're alive yeah yeah our system is messed up it's just is the so with the um the thesis the yeah black girls getting the punishments for mm-hmm. disobedience and whatnot um I guess it wasn't just about punishments. You said discipline. Is there yeah. any, like, discipline measures that aren't strictly, like, punishments mm-hmm. that take place? Because, you know, like, yeah. if you, I don't know, are disciplining your child or yeah. your pet or whoever, you can do positive, like, reinforcement mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. negative reinforcement. Mm-hmm. My family, when I was in my sophomore year of high school, we had a fox. And yeah. my brother bought a fox and we had it in our basement, uh-huh. which was a big basement. Oh, my gosh. You told me this. Okay, for, like, yes. six months. <laughs> Um, and we, we learned that foxes are not like dogs Do- yeah, dogs you can train by like squirting them in the face with water <laughs> when they do things wrong oh, and they'll learn from that foxes evidently don't learn from negative consequences Feedback, whatever yeah. it's like you have to basically ignore the negative things they do and mm-hmm. reinforce the positive things they do yeah wow is there any aspect of that involved in the education system like, uh, well sadly not not really that's kind of up to individual teachers and then i guess well, one, so some of the research I've read has cited PBIS as, like, one of the, like, a solution. And PBIS, positive, it stands for Positive Behavioral Interventions and Supports. Keyword positive. Recognizing students routinely for positive behavior. Giving them positive praise to essentially do what you guys did with the fox. 
is to really highlight those positive behaviors so we get more of that. So instead yeah. of saying, just constantly telling students what not to do, they have an idea of what they should do as well. And they know they will be rewarded for it or recognized for it, which I know some people are like, oh, well, these just know how to... They should just want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Well, yeah, but you're a kid and, yeah. you know, you need to be shown those things. Did you employ any, like, rewards for behavior? Oh, yeah. I, I used food constantly. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. I gave out so many mandarin oranges, especially to the sixth graders. If I knew my cooperating teacher wasn't going to be around after lunch and I was going to have to hang out with the sixth graders by myself, I was running to Aldi's and getting a, two big old bags of mandarin oranges. So I could give to students who during like group work time, I saw they were on, on point. I'd be like, there you go, Pierre. Here's a, here's mandarin oranges. Uh, and, and just like make a show of it. I'm like, yes, Pierre, great job. Here's a mandarin orange. I'll be, I'll be back with another one. If, if you continue, blah, blah, blah. So that kind of thing. So do you think it doesn't really matter what the object is or what the reward is? Just the fact that they're getting one publicly. Uh, it depends on the students for our kids. It better have some decent value. <laughs> Cause we had a lot of teachers who would use like candy as as positive reinforcement to such a degree sometimes that kids didn't give a shit about it after a while. Oh. I used fruit because fruit was like a rarity and kids were really stoked on it. But I've heard of teachers doing goofy things such as, and I, I am not even making this up, like, you know, smelly chapsticks? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I've heard of elementary school teachers. I de- like calling out students who are doing something really well and being like, oh, you get a smelly spot. Uh <laughs> Betty, I'm going to rub this chapstick on your hand and you just get to sniff this cherry chapstick smell on your hand for the next 15 minutes. Interesting. Yeah, just anything. Or you could even just, I've had heard of teachers just letting some kid be like the, just like meaningless titles sometimes. Well, like it's, yeah. When I was in fifth grade, I remember my teacher, I think her name was Mrs. Exner. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) She would, I think, give out raffle tickets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then every month she would have a raffle of, like, toys, candy, Mm -hmm. whatever that you could, like, bid on and stuff. Yeah, my co-op did that, and it was really effective. She would – we used – I think I've mentioned it a couple times – Clash Dojo, which is basically just an online recording tool where you can record students' behavior by giving them a point or taking away a point. And at the end of the week, she'd be like, oh, Jonathan, you have – the most points in the class. Come pick a thing. And that worked pretty well with a certain number of students. So. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say about your thesis? or My anything, thesis? Anything at all? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess just I, I mentioned this already, but the idea of subjectivity impacting a student's discipline experience and then in turn their life kind of shook me. And that just, for me, got me really thinking about my implicit biases as a white female teacher i fall into the majority of what most teachers look like and it's on me to examine what in me could really help or harm harm a student so why do you think most teachers are white females is there research into this there probably is i haven't actually touched any of it you know i could make guesses i think uh, white. It, Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna like wonder: is it at this point just sort of like a subconscious tradition that we have that you just, when you went to school, mm-hmm. all of your teachers were probably white females, so then that just kind of sustained itself. And yeah. there was some uh, original cause, like when there's like schoolhouses yeah. in the 
1820s yeah and for whatever reason they are just kind of carried on or are there reasons that still like today cause mm-hmm. white females to become teachers yeah. over other people yeah i think that for sure it's it is just a traditionally white female field um and i think traditional gender roles have a part in that especially i think of elementary teachers there's a, just a lot of women you know? yeah and then in high school there's a little more men but i think that and then if we think of people who want to be teachers it's people that had at least some really good experiences in school um they can think of a teacher that really supported them something like that so i think and especially after reading all this research the system is really kids who are really dutiful and honestly like submissive and obedient really succeed in our current system and that's more often white females yes um fulfilling gender roles sadly so you know hopefully one day (laughs) we as women will not feel obliged to be quiet and dutiful and submissive because that's the messaging we're getting from society we'll hopefully be able to, to get over that but yeah that is kind of I think the current system is really built for traditional or I guess like white centric femininity. I myself can attest to that. I succeeded in that environment because I didn't I didn't buck the system like you did. I <laughs> I fell in line and here I am pursuing a master's degree. So yeah, I think that has just our beliefs about education and the kind of kids that succeed in education are really reflected by the people who want to teach after experiencing that there's a lot of people who go through school and they're like i want absolutely nothing to do with that for the rest of my damn life and those people for sure will not be teachers and sadly that's so many people of color and many of these black girls are being ejected from their academic communities is there any sort of like one strike two strike three strike system like if a girl, a black girl is mm-hmm. suspended or expelled from school, mm-hmm. is that like kind of it? Does she frequently get second chances at other schools? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I can only speak to MPS, but if you get suspended from one or expelled from one school, you can go to another one unless you do something so horrific that the system says, no, you, you can't even come here. You have to go literally to a private school or something. We've had students. Uh, so part of the reason I really wanted to study this topic is because I saw one student in our seventh grade class being targeted by what I felt was being targeted by an administrator who was punishing her for such things as wearing a hood and sassing her. So, and when I say punished, I mean suspended, just constantly suspended. And eventually the parent got involved and asked for a meeting with all of us teacher like teachers and interns and administrators and the parents just expressed that they were having to take off of work constantly to watch their their daughter who in my experience was not that that difficult of a student she was just loud and again loudness does not work in our current system that's read as defiance or whatever and the parent essentially asked us like hey what's going on like can you tell me what, what is the student doing? Just, just fill me in. And all of us teaching staff were able to, and the, and, and the interns were able to just say something good about this student. 
because she she really wasn't that problematic. She wasn't she didn't hit or hurt anyone. Um, she didn't bring things to school that she wasn't supposed to bring. She was helpful, but when it got to that administrator, that administrator could not say one good thing about that student. And the teacher, the parent asked again, Miss blah blah blah, can you say at least one good thing about my student? Still couldn't do it. So that got me just thinking, what about this student who I know to not be that that difficult of a student? What about her is making this administrator want to target her? And I know this is anecdotal, but... Um, Was that like a sparking moment for choosing this topic? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, and then I read... I started reading a book called The Push-Out by... Or just Push-Out, I'm sorry, by Monique Morris, where she far to... Uh, in much more depth than I will in this literature view, explores the discipline experiences of black girls and specifically those that drive them out of school and into the criminal justice system and stuff like that. So, yeah, which yeah. itself isn't that great. What's that? Which itself isn't that oh, great. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> you had a question at the top of that and then I went and I'm sorry. But <laughs> oh, no. So you did just mention push out. Um, yeah. But I was thinking as yeah. a like tradition of this podcast i could usually end it on recommendations uh-huh. by the guest oh do you have sure. any it doesn't even have to be related to this topic just as as a thing for a listener to go seek out do you have any book recommendations yeah that you think somebody should read oh absolutely yeah so push out of course is one of them that's like if you want the like the non-fiction base of this like that kind of topic and then i think it's just if you are interested in learning more about black girls' academic experiences, not just discipline, and then just the intersection of race and gender that they that they exist in, two really good books to read would be The Bluest Eye, and that's Toni Morrison, I believe, and then um, The Color Purple. And I'm trying to remember the author of that one. She's a very famous author. But both of those stories are told through the perspective of black girls and black women. Uh, the Bluest Eye is told through the perspective of an adolescent black girl in like it's not quite the south i think like ohio or semi midwest just like the uh, her, her world essentially and then her her friend's world and then the color purple that's a classic that's the one that i mean it, there's a movie of it with oprah in it that's told through the perspective of a black woman who is married to a man that she absolutely does not want to be married to and she's kept away from it she's not allowed to get an education blah 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 and all sorts of things ensue her sister is a missionary in africa and that's i don't know it's a really good book i guess aside from the color purple again do you have any tv show or movie recommendations Ooh, yes um so educational shows i guess not really uh hmm, or documentaries, what, I documentaries um 13th? I have not seen it yet, but I'm told... That was a good one. Did you watch it? Okay, yeah. yeah. That's a really good one, especially now. Yeah, I don't know. I just watch a lot of anime, Wade. I'm just a trashy <laughs> TV watcher. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people I know are into anime, but oh, I'm, so I'm not super into it myself. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> I was just exposed to a very ridiculous anime yes. called Food Wars. Yeah. Wait, I was watching that last night. Are you serious? I, I saw like 10 episodes of it a few Who days ago. Who showed it to you? One of my friends. You're kidding me. Yeah. That is the well, no, stuff not. I am on right now. <laughs> I just watched so much of it. It's, oh my gosh. It's we really so much... absurd. Okay. But... 
It's absurd. Yes. It's just like uh, it's so food orgasms. Yes. Constantly. It's so funny. Oh my gosh. Oh, I just finished the one where he meets his roommate, or not his roommate, like his uh, like they all live in like their little dorm. Yeah. And the guy who just struts around in an apron. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It is hilarious. And then he, like, <laughs> he's like the number seven in, yes. in the school, and he wants to challenge his place. Yes. Yeah. It's so funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the show's outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. Food Wars. Watch it. Uh, Boku no Hero. Y'all should all, all watch that one. That's the one the kids are all super excited about. Oh really? Yeah. Also, I mean, they also like Naruto. Like they like all the old animes. I've never seen Naruto. But... Yeah. Apparently, it's really good. Kind of like some avatar vibes it's like righteous warriors all right well i think that probably about covers it i think so thanks for coming on the very first episode of the regular people podcast i'm honored yeah. <laughs> and i mean i really owe this podcast existence to you because what <laughs> i feel like um people in at like a previous job had told me to do a podcast with me, yeah. and, my, me and my friend who would talk at work all the time and that didn't didn't go anywhere because he, <laughs> he disappeared off the face of the earth i think oh, um but then more recently over the past like year or two you were you were mentioned it a few times so i was like maybe it's a good idea to do Heck yeah so we'll see how it goes yeah thank you for the excellent questions you're a skilled interviewer oh that's also good to hear a good radio voice so. <laughs> i hope so i'll i'll find out from any um i don't know comments or people's thoughts if they yes tell me yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode Thanks, Ariel, for coming on. You are so welcome. Goodbye.